Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover, and you know it goes without saying that you can't tell the American story without confronting our country's legacy of racism, from slavery to Jim Crow. We know that these dark periods are part of our history, but one of the myths that's often told about America is that all that bad racist stuff is behind us. That we had Martin Luther King, the Civil Rights Movement, and Beyonce, and hey, we fixed the problem, and now we live in a happy post-race society where everyone holds hands under rainbows and gumdrop trees. Now, this myth is very obviously not true. Overt racism is not hard to uncover in American life. If you don't believe me, just turn on the news or be a person of color in a Starbucks. Racism is still with us, folks. But even if it weren't, even if we had somehow eliminated it a couple decades ago, we'd still be left living in a society shaped by policies created by racists and for racist purposes. For instance, on Adam Ruins Everything, we've talked about redlining, the federal policy which systemically denied access to home loans and other services to African-American communities, which created the housing segregation and racialized wealth inequality we still live with today. The racist policies of the past created our fucked up present, whether we like it or not. Well, here's another example of that dynamic. Throughout the 1920s, industries in the Western United States, like agriculture, increasingly relied on Mexican workers who crossed the border. The head of the L.A. Chamber of Commerce even said, we are totally dependent upon Mexico for agricultural labor. It is our only source of supply. Our farming industry was quite literally built on the backs of migrant laborers. And unsurprisingly, some of these workers would stay. And by the 1920s, Los Angeles had the second largest Mexican community anywhere in the world. Now, this totally freaked out nativists in Congress. The nativists were the racist, isolationist backlash to the decades of immigration, which by the 20s had transformed America. And these nativists wanted to preserve a white Anglo-Saxon America that was already on the wane. And for a racist problem came a racist solution. The idea came from South Carolina Senator Coleman Livingstone Blaze, who was just a straight-up, virulent, old-timey Southern racist. He was an avowed white supremacist, he was against education for African Americans, and he was even pro-lynching. Are you getting the picture? Not a lot of equivocation there. Now... Blaze's issue was that the Supreme Court had already decriminalized immigrants unlawfully residing in the U.S., and he was a friend of big business, so he wanted to come up with a law that punished immigrants while still allowing industry to profit off their labor. So, he crafted a bill that made illegally entering the United States a punishable crime, and Mexicans could still get into America to work, but Blaze's law made it so that if they tried to stay, they could be arrested for their illegal entry, incarcerated, and then deported. Over the next decade, because of Blaze's law, the number of Mexicans imprisoned in America exploded. Within a year of the law's passage in 1929, immigration charges passed all other federal crimes besides those related to liquor. And throughout the 1930s, tens of thousands of Mexicans were prosecuted and imprisoned for unlawfully entering the United States. So many Mexicans were charged with illegal entry that the prison system, which treated them with contempt and brutality, was expanded just to contain them. 
And the worst part is this law, which was put in place by an avowed racist for avowedly racist ends, right? Remember, the guy was basically holding his hand saying, I am a racist and I hate Mexicans and that's why I'm writing this law. That law is still on the books today. It exists now as sections 1325 and 1326 of the U.S. Code. And even today, this law sends more people to federal prison than on any other charge category. And it goes without saying that those being jailed are disproportionately non-white and non-Christian immigrants. So again, this is an example of how the racist laws of the past shape the world we live in today. So why am I telling this story? To make the point that we need history to understand our present. The institutions we live among and the rules and laws that govern them were created by people who are dead now, but they still affect our lives. And if we don't understand what they did and why, we will never learn how to unspool the harms they caused and to eventually heal them. And here's the real problem. Those dead people, especially the worst among them, like Blaze, well, they often weren't too keen on leaving a record of the awful things they did, which is why the work of our guest today is so important. When she tried to look at the history of incarceration in and around Los Angeles and the Western United States, she found that much of the official record had been destroyed. But by using the tools of historians, she was able to piece together a new archive and used it to recount vital stories like the one we told you above. Kelly Lytle Hernandez is a professor of history, African-American studies, and urban planning at UCLA. She is also the winner of a MacArthur Genius Grant and the author, most recently, of City of Inmates, Conquest, Rebellion, and the Rise of Human Caging in Los Angeles. Please welcome Kelly Lytle Hernandez. Kelly, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So just tell me uh, a little bit about your work and, and what you study. Sure. I'm a historian of race, immigration, and the criminal justice system in the United States. And in particular, I look at the ways that the rise of what we call the carceral state has advanced racial iniquity within the United States. And you study uh, incarceration in Los Angeles as a particular focus, is that right? I study Los Angeles and the U.S.-Mexico borderlands in the American West, give a new regional perspective on the story of mass incarceration, which typically we look at from the perspective of the American South or the urban North. I want us to see the ways in which conquest in the American West has shaped our policing practices and the growth of our prison system. Right. So what's different about incarceration in those areas and what does that also reveal about the rest of the country to us? Historically speaking, what I have found to be unique about the rise of mass incarceration, mass deportation in the American West is that what we have learned through the Southern story, which is a story about um, slavery mm-hmm. to Jim Crow, to the new Jim Crow mass incarceration, um, and that orbiting around the ability to extract profit from black bodies in particular through racial capitalism. When you look at it from the perspective of the American West, you certainly have racial capitalism at play. You have the rise of private immigrant detention centers, for example. However, there is another dynamic at work, and that dynamic has to do with um, the long history, the long arm of manifest destiny and conquest, and this effort to remove, to banish, to, as I call, eliminate indigenous populations and racialized outsiders from this region known as the country's racial frontier, the American West. Mm. So this effort to pull black, brown, and indigenous bodies off of streets, 
put them into cages, and then ultimately deport and forcibly removed from the country whenever possible, is really at work across the American West. And l- let's drill into that a little bit because I-, I feel that a lot of times when we talk about, you know, that uh, you know America's uh, you know racist policies, racist histories, it feels a little bit abstract, and you know, like we're talking about this sort of general movement of the country. But in this case, there's like individual people who are who are on the record with <laughs> saying that that was their goal. Is, is that not true? Absolutely. Well, certainly beginning with the the Indian Wars of the colonial period all the way through the 19th century, but also with a high-pitched moment of the U.S.-Mexico War of 1846 to 1848, which U.S. President Polk launched explicitly as a war of racial conquest, Mm. seeing Mexicans as not deserving of California in particular, but the lands of what would become the American West in general. And that is a campaign to take land from Native and Mexican landholders and is imagined as a project of extending Anglo-American migration and conquest across the entire North American continent from sea to shining sea. And if anyone has uh, read their high school textbook, you've read about this process. It's called Manifest Destiny. I know those two words. Yes, I do. (laughs) And so that we know quite a bit about. The issue is sometimes we think about that moment of conquest as ending in the 19th century. However, the particular form of conquest that Manifest Destiny took, scholars now recognize as this thing called settler colonialism. The idea was not for Anglo-American families headed by men to come west and to lord over indigenous communities to turn them into laborers. The project of Manifest Destiny was to remove Native peoples from the land, to Mm. extinguish their sovereignty, and to um, eliminate them in body or in political constitution. This has had an enduring impact upon the cultures and institutions of the American West because the ongoing occupation of indigenous lands is a process that has to be reified, reenacted every day, every year to make the occupation seem legitimate. In California, the treaties that were signed with Native communities were um, not signed by Congress, not approved by Congress, and then hidden in the Senate's basement for many years and called the Lost Treaties Hmm. so that the United States did not have to honor the commitments it had made to Native peoples of California in terms of, yeah, we're going to take all the coastal land, but you are going to get all of the inland land. Those were simply, as they call forgotten, but in fact, they were hidden. Those kinds of maneuvers were utilized throughout the 19th century and the 20th century to take land from Native and non-white peoples. And that occupation is ongoing today. So I'd like to talk about the days of conquest not being over. Mm. And that fact shapes our everyday interactions with one another and certainly has a powerful grip 
on our policing and conservation systems. Well, so that's a, a theme that we return to on this show and in my work uh, again and again that these policies of the past uh, or, you know, the, the intentions that the bad intentions that people had in the past continue to the present day or shape our present reality in ways that we don't understand, often in extremely concrete ways that the, the you know, the shapes of, of the very neighborhood you live in might be defined by, uh, you know, a, a racist policy that you have never heard of, right? Um, that is still enacted in your life today. So so tell me, how does this connect to us today? How do we see that conquest, as you put it, in our daily lives now? Oh, that's such a good question. And it, it relates in many ways. And maybe we could use immigration law as an, an example. Let's do it. So um, the American West, California in particular, was key in the creation of the federal immigration regime. What happened was in the 19th century, as these Anglo-American families are coming out to California um, during and after the gold rush, they became quite alarmed at the number of Chinese immigrants who were already in California working the mines and working the land. And they said, look... We didn't go to war with Mexico and with Native communities to take California for Chinese immigrants. Sure. This is the the land of manifest destiny. And so what we have to do is we have to either in California or convince Congress to create ways to expel Chinese immigrants from this land. It's that impetus, that sensibility, that dedication to white supremacy that pushes California to push the United States Congress to take control over U.S. borders and in that taking control of U.S. borders, creating possibilities and systems for keeping Chinese immigrants out and for removing those who are already within the country. So during the late 19th century, the passage of a series of laws that people are probably familiar with, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Heard of that as well. Yes, in 1892 with the Geary Act, which extends the Chinese Exclusion Act. Those laws are critical. They first are the first to ban a racialized population from entering the United States. And they're also the first to create this, this person called the undocumented immigrant. And that happens in 1892 in particular with the Geary Act, which requires all Chinese persons in the United States to get and to carry around um, residency papers, certificates. And if they don't have those certificates of residency, they are, quote, undocumented wow. and subject to up to one year in prison and then forced removal from the country, deportation. This is the very first mass deportation system created in the United States, and it was created to remove a racially targeted population, Chinese immigrants in particular. Now, Chinese immigrants, as all immigrants have um, always done, fought back. They refused to be singled out, to be racialized, and be kicked out. And they organized the first mass civil disobedience campaign for immigrants in our country. This campaign was phenomenal. They, many, put money into a purse so that they could hire some of the nation's best constitutional lawyers. And they challenged the notion that the federal government had the capacity, the legal capacity, to forcibly remove them from the country. And in a series of U.S. Supreme Court decisions that were issued between the 1880s and the 1890s, um, that is when the architecture 
of our immigration system was created. Let's talk about this really quickly. What were some of those rulings? Those three rulings that are particularly important, and people can go look them up, Che Chan Ping versus the United States, Fong Yu Ting versus the United States, and Wang Wing versus the United States. And these three rulings issued in 18, I believe, 85, 1893, and 1896, um, the United States Supreme Court did the following things. One, they said that to be in the United States without authorization is not a crime. That remains Mm. true today. Mm. Now, that sounds kind, right? <laughs> it, <laughs> sounds it, also, like- it also sounds very contrary to what a lot of people think. A lot of people are under the belief that being in the United States uh, as undocumented is criminal. It is not. To oh. be in the United States without papers is not a crime. It is a civil infraction. Ah. Why this is important is because the protections that are guaranteed in the United States Constitution to people under criminal proceedings do not apply to people under civil proceedings. And so what the United States Supreme Court did is effectively dropped a veil between Chinese immigrants and deportation proceedings and the United States Constitution. Hmm. And they very clearly articulate in these rulings that when it comes to deportation, in their mind it is the deportation of Chinese immigrants in particular, the protections of the United States Constitution, quote, do not apply. Protections against indefinite detention, protections against cruel and unusual punishment, and so on, do not apply. Um, The U.S. Supreme Court also in these rulings determined that deportation is not a punishment for crime. If being here without papers is not a crime, then you cannot be criminally punished for that. Because deportation is not a punishment for crime, again, the protections of the United States Constitution do not apply. For cruel and unusual punishment, don't. All of that. So if you look and you see children on the border today being held in warehouses and given um, space blankets and separated from their families. You got to go back to the late 19th century and to these Chinese exclusion cases to understand why that is legal and why that is possible. Wow. You're, it, you're, you're blowing my mind with this because, because I, first of all, I had always thought of that thing that it's a civil and not a criminal violation as, yeah, as, as saying, oh, it's, it's not as big a deal. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, uh, but you're saying that, a, that decision is what results in the what many of us consider cruel conditions that, uh, uh, you know, folks are being held in in these detention centers and that that regime, exactly what you're talking about, children, you know, the, quote, kids in cages, kids in space blankets, people being held for extremely long periods of time, very poor access to, you know, immigration courts being this like bizarre kangaroo court system that people are held in forever and then barely get a, a you know, a fair hearing. That is all based in the response to the racist effort to rid the country of Chinese immigrants. Correct. Wow. There's one more piece. <laughs> oh, 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 God. Oh, God. And you got to hear this one. If you're hardly in your chair now, what? Oh, Wait I was hoping we were done. Okay. Oh, no, we're not done. Okay. So, and it's um, one of its final ruling, which is the Wong Ring, Wing ruling of May 17, 1896. The U.S. Supreme Court held that if people are not, um, have not committed a crime for being in the United States without authorization... And if they're not being punished, criminally speaking, with this thing called deportation, then the period of detention between when they're, quote, apprehended, not arrested, apprehended, and then forced out of the country, i.e. deported, is not a term of imprisonment. Mm. 
It's actually a term of detention. Wow. It's, quote, according to the United States Supreme Court, not imprisonment in a legal sense. Why that matters is because, because again, the conditions of confinement do not um, the U.S. Constitution does not apply to the conditions of confinement. Wow. Now, let me tell you something okay. about the court that issued that ruling. On May 17th of 1896, the U.S. Supreme Court issued several rulings. One of them was this Wong Wing versus the United States. And another one is with, one which your listeners will be very familiar, Plessy v. Ferguson. Another one I know from high school. Absolutely. Another one, a key one that you know from high school. This is a bad one, right? It's a very bad one. Okay. This is the ruling that created Jim Crow America. Yeah. Plessy v. Ferguson created racial segregation. Um, it created the crisis of post-emancipation America until the civil rights movement of the separation of um, black from white in particular, but all non-whites um, to a certain degree. So it's the same court. It's the same culture. It's the same anxieties and minds that gave us Jim Crow America that gave us our immigration regime. Wow. And we have since, you know, it took a very long time, but Plessy v. Ferguson is has been dispensed with, correct? Like we, that has been uh, altered. But this other regime, which dates from the same year, the same minds, as you say, the same perspective is still with us. That That is still on the books today. You got it. If you look into all of the immigration rulings that are coming out of the Supreme Court today, you will look, if you look into the footnotes, you will see Wang Wing, Che Chanping, Fang Yuting. Those are the precedents of our lives. Let me be very, very clear. Brown v. Board effectively overturns Plessy v. Ferguson and Mm -hmm. leads us into the um, new legal infrastructure of race relations in the United States. However, let us not over-celebrate that moment that quickly upon the heels of the civil rights movement, we get mass incarceration. We have other ways of managing black life in particular in this country. So, yes, we have overturned Plessy v. Ferguson, but other regimes popped up. But you are right to say that at its core, we have not overturned the infrastructure and the architecture of the U.S. immigration regime that was built during the Chinese exclusion period. Right. We've softened its edges, and, but it's still there. And I think, look, point absolutely taken about Brown v. Board and, and all these other issues that, uh, <laughs> you know, we're not, uh, you know, the, the civil rights movement is not, uh, did not solve America, <laughs> right, in its relationship with, uh, you know, its African-American residents. But, uh, you know, the at the very least, our myth is that we did. Um, our myth is that the, uh, you know, America, is corrected the sins of the past. And uh, this is a another sin sitting right next to uh, the previous one uh, that we you know learn about in school that has what slipped by completely unnoticed or not completely not unnoticed by you. <laughs> and I assume uh, other folks uh, in your you know other colleagues of yours, but um, that's that's a stunning revelation to me. Well, of course. I mean, one of the most powerful myths in the United States is that we are a nation of immigrants. Yeah. That is a lie. We are a nation of settlers, a nation that was created for white men, to be honest, and heterosexual Mm. white families to procreate upon land that was stolen from Native peoples and when needed to extract labor from non-white disposable bodies. We are not a nation of immigrants, and the non-white immigrants who have immigrated to this country over time 
beginning with Chinese immigrants and then with a large number of Mexican immigrants during the 20th century and increasingly a large number of Central American immigrants and many other non-white immigrants from the Caribbean and Asia and elsewhere. They have all been met with extraordinary police force, the creation of the United States Border Patrol, the creation of deportation, and they have been forcibly removed from this country at extraordinarily high rates. Look, the United States has forced out of the United States, forced out of this country, nearly 50 million people since 1896. Well over 90% of those people have been non-white. The people being forced out of the country today about 97% of them are non-white. The system of racial banishment that operates under the name called deportation is a highly racialized um, regime. Yeah. Yeah, German and Norwegian immigrants aren't being uh, detained and and put onto boats, <laughs> despite uh, like the Fievel goes west, not Fievel goes west. The uh, the the American tale uh, immigrants, like that that vision, which is an analog for for white immigrants, are not uh, n- never suffered under the same regime. No, absolutely not. Not unless they were <laughs> anarchist. Radicals from the turn of the 20th century. (laughs) They did not do so well under immigration laws, I must say. But other than that, the targets have been typically um, racial outsiders and at times religious outsiders as well. And isn't there a degree to which uh, I alluded to this in the intro, um, but it's come up again and again in my work whenever I've covered the subject of immigration that especially when you're looking at the West and the Southwest and these Chinese and Mexican populations, that these are laborers who are to some extent not have invited in but incentivized by you know the the industrial industry in uh, the United States uh, to serve as a labor force that uh, you know migrant labor from south of the United States border is like what United States agriculture was built on um, but at the same time that same population that we've relied on since the beginning is also constantly being punished for its presence so it's with one hand, Come and, you know, pick fruit. And with the other hand, well, now you'll be imprisoned and deported and, and your life will be uh, uprooted again and again. Is that is that impression correct? You are 100 percent correct. Scholars call, call this the dueling sides of white supremacy, mm. that there's an economic demand to white supremacy, that we need um, as much disposable and cheap labor. What's One way you do that, you create racialized labor. And that's... The railroads, that's agribusiness, always going out around the globe um, looking for these disposable labor sources. Um, The other side of white supremacy is more of a cultural, ethno-racial form of white supremacy that says, no, we need a pure, all-white community. And these two sides have battled with each other across American history. And you can see those battles erupt probably most significantly in U.S. immigration law. Mm. It's it's such a <laughs> I, I don't know it, it it's such a wild dynamic to see play out and again and again of the uh, the, the constant cry of which I, I believe has been going on for a long time of oh well these folks are are taking jobs they're they're taking American jobs but they're doing jobs that specifically uh, white Americans have almost never done and that were like kind of specifically created to be done by an imported, extremely low-wage workforce. Um, Like those jobs would never have existed if not for that workforce. 
It's it's so strange. It's it's complicated, isn't it? So there is a moment at the turn of the 20th century when um, a large number of white men are doing these jobs. Mm. And um, after the Civil War, the rise of corporate capitalism and the privatization of land um, across really eastern and southern United States, more and more white men, young white men were dispossessed of land. They couldn't get access to it. And we're having a hard time accessing sort of steady work. These men become the, quote, wandering poor, the so-called tramps and hobos. Mm -hmm. And they migrate across the Midwest and into the American West to work in seasonal industries in mining and lumber and agriculture and railroads and whatnot. And they are regarded as an internal racial threat to white America. Uh, How so? And well, how so? This is a good question. Um, These are men who are traveling around in all male communities. They do not have wives or women. So they live in homosocial communities and they're engaging in homosexual relationships. So Uh they're not contributing to the propagation of the white family. These are men who often begin to espouse a more radical politics. They're starting to challenge this notion that maybe the United States isn't a nation of settlers. It could be something else, um, living sometimes side by side with communities of color. These are men who either cannot or refuse to settle down on native land and take permanent positions. So on all of these grounds, these white men are regarded as internal racial threats. And there is a pretty aggressive carceral response to them. They become criminalized and policed and locked up across the American West at the turn of the 20th century mm-hmm. in something called the, quote, war on tramps. <laughs> so if you went to the jails of L.A., in 1900, nearly 100% of the local jail population was white men. Uh. And it comes out of this panic of tramping and hobos. So even when white men have taken these positions, they have been racialized as outsiders. They are seen as a aberration. Perhaps not all white men could survive in the industrial era. And if they were some kind of genetic um, aberration, they too needed to be criminalized, locked wow. up. And removed from the population. It's just, but it's just jails full of Charlie Chaplin looking dudes. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> World War One comes. Yeah. The nineteen twenties come, and those men are swept up into uniforms and into factories, and that crisis comes to an end at exactly the same moment that you have a rising number of Mexican immigrants coming into the country. So there is a, a shift that happens in the nineteen twenties. But you know, one thing to remember is that poor white folks are not exempt from this racial politics of mm. manifest destiny, settler colonialism, um, that none of us are really safe. So how does that inter- intersect with, you know, you've been talking about white supremacy as a regime in America. Just how do those two things intersect when you're saying that also poor whites can be the, the victims of that same regime? Oh, poor whites have always been the victim of white supremacy, certainly. Um, it depends upon their complicity, their agreement that they'll take what W. E. Du Bois has called the wages of whiteness, which is a psychological wage, over economic security. Um, so they'll buy into the subjugation of black folks because it makes them feel greater than mm-hmm. 
some population, black people in particular, rather than working collaboratively with um, African-Americans and other racialized populations to secure or to find economic security for all of them. So these wages of whiteness have been paid across time and have been quite powerful. Yeah, the the way I've heard it put is that in an effort to not have there be a, a you know a, a wide ranging class struggle in America where the you know the the poor folks of America rise up and and demand their fair share, uh, white supremacy is used as a way to divide that class and to say that to the you know to the white folks who are closest to the bottom, hey, at least you're not people of color, right? So you're, <laughs> you're, hey, hey, you're, you're better than somebody. And, you know, if you help us keep the boot on the neck, then you'll still be better than somebody forever. Um, That's very well put. Mm. You'll be hungry, but you'll yeah. be better than somebody. <laughs> um, that's really fascinating. And it it really, it, I mean, it, man, these, these issues are just so complex in American history, like the way that these populations move and are uh, are treated and considered at every stage in our history. Yeah, well, I've dedicated my entire career to looking at these issues, and I still feel like I'm just beginning to learn how they operate. Yeah. Well, we have to take a really quick break. When we get back, I want to hear about the fascinating way that you do your work. Uh, we'll be right back with more Kelly Lytle Hernandez. Okay, we're back with Kelly Lytle Hernandez. So, uh, Kelly, I understand in your work researching the impact of incarceration, uh, you've run into a lot of cases in which the people who left records of how these policies have been enforced were not so keen on folks finding out about them. And there are a lot of destroyed records, things like that. You had to construct your own archive. Can you tell me about that a bit? Absolutely. And of course, this is still going on today. There were reports recently about um, document destruction happening at ICE, and it's certainly happening with law enforcement agencies across the country. Uh, when I began to look into the history of mass incarceration in Los Angeles, in the American West, I went to look at the rec for the records of the local police departments and only found that here in L.A., four boxes of historical material remained vast wow. majority of their historical records have been destroyed over time, which means that the people who were responsible for policing and human caging had effectively trashed the record of their work. And it made it very difficult for me to figure out who did what to whom and why and when and where, you know, the basic yeah. bones of historical um, narratives. And what I had to do is create what I call a rebel archive. That rebel archive are all the documents that somehow survived police destruction, maybe a, a police memo that was sent out to another organization was saved in their files, the records of maybe teachers or health workers who stepped foot inside of the local jails and wrote down what was happening. Those kinds of records survived police destruction across more than a century. But I also collected up the records of the people who fought the rise of mass incarceration, the rebels in the carceral age. And together, those sets of records allowed me to tell the, t the story of how Los Angeles built the largest jail system on Earth across the 20th century. On Earth? Yes, the Vera Institute of Justice has done a pretty extensive study and found that the L.A. County jail system is not only the largest jail system in the United States, it's... Um, According to their records, the largest jail system on earth. 
Wow. And uh, this law enforcement regime in Los Angeles has been around for uh, 100 years or so, and there were only four boxes of historical records in the whole place. From the LAPD, that is correct. Wow. And uh, I'm curious, I'm so curious, how do you do this work? Like when you are, you know, you're, you're bringing all these memos together, all these various scraps and pieces of ephemera. How do you, what does the day-to-day work of that uh, history unearthing look like? How do you use that to construct that picture? Oh, wow, you're asking me my greatest joy. What does it look like when I get to go into the archive and play with all these pieces of paper? Um, well, first, it's chaos. You have no idea. You cannot presume what happened in the past. Um, when I first started writing this recent book, City of Inmates, I thought I was going to be writing the history of Black L.A. and its constant engagements with law enforcement. What I found, in fact, in the archive is that Native peoples were the first population to be targeted for criminalization and policing and found that record in local newspapers, um, maybe a, a jail record, a jail um, roster that survived here and there and other records and was able to tell the story of the origins of mass incarceration in L.A., which is of the policing of the local Native population, largely on public order charges. Really? Um, on any given night, maybe a third of the local indigenous population was locked up and then forced to work on either the public chain gang or sold to local employers. This is in the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. My my God, that's so... That that feels like so late <laughs> to me for that. I, I I don't know why you know you have this you have this vision of uh, things like that being done, and it was the 1700s. All right, that was a long time ago, but that's that's so recent. It is so very recent, right? So, I mean, U.S. occupation of California and the American West begins in 1850 at the yeah. close of the well, formally begins in 1850 at the close of U.S.-Mexico War, and it's the first priority to seize political and territorial control from local indigenous and Mexican populations. And that happened in a variety of ways. Of course, here in California, the most brutal and explicit campaign of anti-Native genocide occurred. Why did it happen here? Well, of course, as Anglo-American troops and families are moving across the continent, as we know, one of the priorities had been to remove Native population, the Trail of Tears, into Indian territory and elsewhere. Once you hit the Pacific coast, there's nowhere else to push and remove indigenous populations. And what happens is a campaign of genocide where the local governments, state governments, and the federal government paid vigilantes and militant troops to deliver heads to local courthouses. Wow. And I would encourage people to look into the work of my colleague, Benjamin Madley, and his book, American Genocide, to learn more about this story. That genocide is really the, the bedrock of California history. And it's during that genocide that you also have a campaign of criminalization and policing and locking up, all of it together working to remove Native people from the land. So once you find that story, even from a progressive lens, right? So we're now more familiar with the nearly two decades of work that has helped us to understand that after slavery was not this simple thing called emancipation. Yeah, It was certainly Jim Crow. And that convict leasing and the process of criminalization and policing incarceration was key 
to the Jim Crow era. Yeah. And that that was about taking black bodies and recreating the forms of slavery. We know that the 13th Amendment prohibits slavery in voluntary servitude, except in cases of punishment for crime. And so that exception becomes the creation of what Douglas Blackman calls slavery by another name. I was 100% prepared to think and understand about the rise of mass, mass incarceration from that perspective. What shocked me is the ways in which, when you look at the history of mass incarceration from the perspective of American West, indigenous genocide sits at the root of the story. And over time, it's the reinvention of slavery through racial capitalism and the removal of indigenous populations, settler colonialism, that work together to create um, mass incarceration and mass deportation. I, I, sorry, I'm just, I'm just so stunned by this. Um, how do you conceive of, as we sort of bring this to a close here, um, how does discovering that, you know, we both live in Southern California, um, how do how do these discoveries make you feel differently about the the place that you live in? And you know, how do you uh, you know we we've got this very pat uh, belief about American history that we are you know often or at least folks who who grew up in my position are able to live with that. Uh, you know, you hear, uh, yeah, the country was stolen from the Native Americans, but, I, I, you know, you hear this in an abstract way and, um, you know, it seems like it was something that way, was way back in the past and, and you know, maybe you, you, uh, uh, you know, you make your peace with it somehow and you go on living. And then when you hear about the details like this, right, um, about the, the specific campaigns and, and how recent it was and how overt it was and how much of a, how brutal it was and how much it's a matter of of clear historic record, right? Or when you, you know, I was reading a book about the uh, LA River a um, few weeks ago and opened up and there was a map of, you know, Indian settlements in Los Angeles, right? And it looked exactly uh, looked exactly like the map of the city that I understand, but there's little X's for where there were villages, right? <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. and that was, like you say, it was 150 years ago. It's not that long ago. It was within, you know, my great-grandparents' day. Uh, and as you say, those were wiped out through genocide. Um, and I don't know what to do with that, like emotionally when I'm simply living here. <laughs> right. Um, and I don't expect you to have an answer to that, but I'm, I'm curious what, you know, how, how you conceive of that. Well, of course the genocide was not successful. Native populations found ways to, to hide and to survive and to thrive and rebuilt communities across the 20th century. And today, Los Angeles is home to the largest urban native population in the country, which is oh. both Tongva Gabrielino and native f- folks from across the, the continent. Um, but how do we, how do I personally reckon with all of this? It's a, it's a difficult task. But when I completed this book, I was truly heartbroken breathless and wordless with the depth of what's happening in our jails and our prisons and our detention center, that there's a thread of racial elimination that's happening. It's not just the extraction of profit. It is certainly that, but it is also a project of mass elimination. So I call mass incarceration mass elimination. 
And the only response that I could find to that was I had to either, one, retreat into the ivory tower and just write my simple books and peer-reviewed articles, or I had to organize with our community advocates and our rebels, and I had to participate in the fight back for our survival. And when you think about the fact that I was a black girl raised in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands by a fairly radical black family and the tradition that they gave me, the obligations that they taught me, that the generations that came before us had the courage to fight back and make it possible for me to live and to breathe and to thrive in the ways that I do today. I have an obligation to fight back. And so after completing this book, I worked with, I continue to work with some of the leaders in the movement to end mass incarceration here in Los Angeles. And together we created this project called Million Dollar Hoods. Mm. And people can check it out at milliondollarhoods.org. And what we do there is a couple of things. First, we map how much is being spent on incarceration per neighborhood here in Los Angeles, showing that in some communities, majority black and brown communities, millions of dollars is being spent every year to lock up local residents. Those are the million-dollar hoods. In some communities, it's $80 million in the last few years. In In a single community? In a single community. When you think of what that money would do for that community if it were spent on anything else... For that you community. hit it on the nose. Yeah. Housing, education, employment, mental health services. Yeah. That we've got the public dollars. We don't have the public will. And we want to shift money out of policing and incarceration and into those services we know build thriving families and communities. What we're also doing at Million Dollar Hoods is we're training a new generation of data analysts to fight at the front lines of social justice campaigns. So we're training formerly incarcerated students, um, community members and advocates, black, brown, indigenous community members to use data analytics and visualization to tell our stories. Why is this important? We live in an era of big data and big data is being used to whitewash different systems and regimes of white supremacy to make them look like it's just an objective algorithm. So we're training ourselves to have the capacity to intervene in those conversations and to create our own algorithms for freedom and our equations for reparations for the harms that have been done to us. So those are the two main things that we're doing at Million Dollar Hoods. And it's a project based here at UCLA, but it's truly driven by the communities that have been most impacted by mass incarceration here in the city of inmates. Wow. Th- thank you so much for coming on to tell us about that work. It's it's fascinating, and, and I really thank you for your time. Oh, thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. <laughs> thank you so much, Kelly. And that is it for us this week. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our engineer, Ryan Connor, our researcher, Sam Roudman, Andrew WK, for our theme song. You can check out my website at adamconover.net for tour dates and to sign up for my newsletter. Follow me on Twitter at adamconover if that's the thing you feel like doing. And until next week, we'll see you on Factually. Thanks so much for listening. Factually.